Hey there, it's Ann Althaus, your podcaster, your blogger. Monday morning, November 9th, almost a full week since the election, and we still don't know who won or, or do we. Maybe different people feel different things. I'm standing aloof from the whole process. Some of my posts are about this. I actually had a hard time getting started coming up with things I wanted to blog because I don't want to get sucked too far into the details of what the arguments are about still fighting on the Trump side. I think there ought to be a page that's easy to get to, maybe on the Trump campaign website, and there isn't, that marshals the evidence, that shows the evidence very clearly, makes it very visually clear and factual what the assertions are, what the evidence is. Not just general things about how their uh, people might be tempted to cheat and might, on a low level, be in a decentralized way cheating, uh, whether there's any kind of manipulation from the top down. Uh, I can see that that's true. I don't want that. I mean, you could list those theories. I know there's some mathematical thing about a curve. Um, you're not going to... Uh, that you're not going to win anyone new to your side by talking about that and just insisting. I mean, I I have I, I find it much harder to listen to the Scott Adams podcast than I used to because um, it's very much about uh, keeping people's hopes up that there could be a. Bleh, I don't even like the way I'm podcasting. Ah, you know I. Well, I'll keep going because I guess I just demonstrated how I feel. I want a clear, I'm not going to talk in detail about what other people are saying when I don't have text in front of me. What I want is something very visual and clear on the Trump website or somewhere else that's easy to get. And I tried Googling and I got nowhere that shows exactly what the evidence is, exactly what the assertions are and makes a person feel like, yes, there's something substantial here. Otherwise, I just get the feeling they're, they're just keeping it going and delaying satisfaction to the other side for whatever reason, just making it difficult in a peevish way. And I understand the motivation to serve back to the Democrats what they gave to Trump four years ago. So um, I'm just saying I'm not going to get involved in the argument one way or the other. I'm not dancing in the street for Biden or celebrating. I'm not pushing for Trump, but I acknowledge that the Trump side can wait it out until the votes are all counted and the legal remedies are exhausted, up to a point. I mean, it's got to be resolved by the point in December where the cutoff line is. And I know lots of details about what the cutoff is based on the Gore v. Bush litigation so many years ago, but this isn't like Gore v. Bush where it was all in one state and the margin of victory was so small uh, that any kind of minor change in how things were counted or how ballots were looked at could have made the difference. And it was very, very frustrating to people. Uh, either both or neither deserved to win. And I don't really want to talk about that either. Anyway, all of this is to say I had trouble getting started on the blog this morning I got up super early. I still haven't adjusted to daylight savings time. And we walked like mad yesterday. We went walked many miles out of Blue Mound on a 
trail I like out there called the Overload. I have a picture on the blog of that you can look at. Um, and uh, yeah, I find it hard to focus on the blog today. I don't like the kind of articles that are out there, and I'm not seeing the variety of things that I want. Although I do have something about sommeliers that is at least a change of pace. It's not a delightful story because it's about sexual harassment. That isn't good, but it's a change of pace. So the, the stories I have um, are about the position Buttigieg will get, might get in the Biden administration. Um, there's the idea of the uh, fight within the Democratic Party. I'm interested in that. There is the um, question of, uh, well, Trump dragging things out. No, I'm not, I'm not giving off a, uh, an exciting, like, oh, this will be fun. We'll listen to the Althaus podcast. It sounds like Althaus doesn't even want to do the podcast. Hmm, maybe I don't. I could just stop right now. I don't know. Maybe I should resist. You know, I just put up a post, uh, embedded a tweet by Jake Tapper, and he says, I truly sympathize with those dealing with losing. It's not easy, but at a certain point, one has to think not only about what's best for the nation, peaceful transfer of power, but how any future employers might see your character defined during adversity. And just wait a minute, I, I have, I'm seeing Jake Tapper's character defined during adversity. What the hell? He is trying to scare people that their job might be endangered? It's such a low thing to do to people. I mean, you have a high-level job, and most people are struggling at some level to have the job that they have or to get another job. It's difficult. And to make them feel like, well, if you're too uh, uh, noticeable in your political opinions, you might not get a job. And in fact, uh, I'd like to encourage future employers to think about the character of the people they might hire by looking at what they've said politically out there. And those people probably ought to shut up or they're going to, they should have to feel threatened and worried about their job prospects. Man, I just think, that is so low um, to just want the votes to be counted, the legal votes to be counted. That's the Trump side. Uh, it might be far-fetched. We only have a 1% chance, but why wouldn't you fight for a 1% chance? A 1% chance is the chance you have of dying if you get COVID. 1% matters. I don't know that it's 1%. I'm just saying that. My heading for this post is, is this a general rule? Resistance to acknowledging the winner of an election ought to affect a person's job prospects? Or is this just for those who want to wait for the Biden versus Trump process to play out? I mean, what about the people who held out hopes for the Mueller report and Russian collusion and then even kept saying that they thought it existed even after the Mueller report came out? Can, should those per people be refused jobs because their character is uh, shown by their clinging to this? Um, you know, there's just so many. I'm not that emotional about the election. I'm a cool customer. And yet I think I would be just, I'm retired, so I don't care. 
but I feel like I would be discriminated against just because I haven't hated Trump along with the others. And I, I, but I would like to judge the character of the people who think that those who don't hate Trump enough are terrible, are Nazis or whatever. Um, really, I'm a little annoyed at this, but I think uh, so many people are so emotional and they're expressing it on the internet. Are we now gonna say uh, employers should read the social media of everyone and um, discriminate against them? Probably most of the discrimination will just be discrimination for political viewpoint. They were emotional about Trump, uh, for Trump, or they were emotional against Democrats and therefore they'll lose their job. That, where does that go? You know, one place that goes is to the benefit of people whose job is uh, in the media, in the professional media, and to get people to give up on this social media junk because uh, it's too dangerous. What have you got to gain? You'd better keep your mouth shut. I mean, I think maybe we're converging toward that, that uh, having learned how to speak online we're going to end up being afraid to say anything. And then what's online, instead of being this vivid speech forum that, we, that I dreamed of, that I was so excited about um, 16 years ago or so, uh, it's going to turn into just mindless junk. And um, yeah, what was the point of it all? to show your pictures of your children and your dogs. It was just like spending uh, the afternoon at grandma's with the photo albums and the, uh, and the pets. Is that what we're doing? Is that what all of this was about? Thanks, Jake. Terrible. Okay, what else have I got? From Axios. GOP leaders and confidants of President Trump tell Axios his legal fight to overturn President-elect Joe Biden's victory could last a month or more, possibly pushing the political wars toward Christmas time. <laughs> Why do he say Christmas time? <laughs> uh, the, my, my dear husband Mead was, uh, pointed that out. Why did he use the word Christmas time? And he, he said in the comments, the war on Christmas time. <laughs> Possibly pushing 2020 wars, political wars toward Christmas time. <laughs> oh, geez. Axios. Quote Axios is told an internal effort is underway to dissuade Trump from pursuing a blitz. That could mean three to six weeks of legal challenges, discovery, and rulings. At the same time, Biden is talking daily about a message of healing. Oh, so it's sort of like this. I made a tag, Biden the healer. So Biden is trying to heal and Trump is just picking up the scabs. He's just being uh, mischievous and interfering with the healing process. He's pulling out the tubes. He shouldn't fight. He shouldn't fight for his side. He should give up because Biden is already involved in the healing. The healing. The Biden side is healing. Why, why when uh, Trump was opposed after the 2016 election, why wasn't what Trump was doing considered healing and what the Democrats were doing considered uh, this, uh, this anti-healing interference? Interfering with the healing. You know, that's the framing of what the Democrats are doing. They're the healers. 
It's a process of healing. So if you oppose them, you're getting, you're getting in the way of the healing. Quote, a senior Republican who talks often to Trump said the president is angry, volatile, disconsolate. <laughs> a senior Republican who talks often to Trump. Who would that be? A senior Republican. Angry, volatile, disconsolate. Those are adjectives you could probably come up with for Trump at any, any given time. Does that mean he isn't also uh, sanguine about fighting and uh, feisty and energized? Disconsolate. Disconsolate. Do you picture him moping around, lying on the floor with his arm covering his eyes, crying? Do you think he's crying? I don't. It's impossible to picture. It's hard, you know, let me continue with the quote. Trump plans to hold rallies focused on the litigation and brandish obituaries of people who were recorded as voting but are dead. Close quote. Yeah, uh, if you're going to start brandishing actual obituaries of people, uh, that's kind of ugly. I mean, people are real people and uh, waving ob obituaries around isn't, isn't very nice, isn't very pleasant the opposite of healing, you're going to be, you're going to be using dead people as props, if that's what he's really going to do. Well, let's see, how good of rallies could he do focused on the litigation? Of course, litigation is about carefully marshalling the evidence and making strong legal arguments, and rallies really are kind of the opposite of that. Maybe he should be having rallies that are about helping those um, Georgia senators, GOP senators, get elected in the January runoff. Quote, Republican operatives told Axios they worry that Trump's scorched earth, earth fight will divert money from the real remaining prize for the GOP, the twin Georgia runoffs on January 5th, that'll determine control of the Senate. Close quote. And I said, I'd like to see some clear-headed analysis of whether Trump's holding out and fighting will help or hurt the Republicans in the Georgia runoffs. Axios, which obviously wants Trump to concede, is pushing the assumption that a concession will boost the GOP Georgia candidates. You know, you should concede because that will refocus things on the Georgia Senate races, and so that will help the GOP keep their control of the Senate. I can understand that argument, but I also think Axios is motivated to make that argument in order to push Trump towards conceding. So what's the other argument? Um, you could say that Trump's diehard fighting demonstrates the importance of keeping the liberals out of power. And if Trump ultimately fails, but he succeeds in making you think it's really important to keep the liberals from taking over power, that will build up this feeling that it's important to keep the control of the Senate. And so that could fuel the fight for the Georgia Senate seats. Trump's fight will be over by the second week of January, I believe, based on the timelines that we know from Bush v. Gore. The Georgia runoffs are on January 5th. So Trump could be firing people up and keeping a lot of excitement and focus and mobilization of Republicans up through the first half of December. And then we have another 25 days or so to be focused on those two Georgia runoffs. Meanwhile, 
Well, what about Christmas time, though? January 5th? Well, you know, we're already stuck with the COVID, so might as well be all political around the holiday. Some people would like the, the election material to die down so that they can enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas time and New Year's. But that'll be hard to do if Trump is doing rallies and keeping everyone stirred up and the Georgia runoffs are coming up. But uh, that's a reason why the Democrats might run out of steam while the Republicans remain very fired up. So it could work. It could work, at least not with respect to getting Trump to win the presidency, but to getting the Republicans to win those two runoffs and keep the control of the Senate. I think that's likely to happen because it was hard, even though the Democrats made things close in Georgia, and we so close that we still don't know the outcome. They, the Democrats did that in Georgia by mobilizing a lot of people. How many people will Democrats be able to keep mobilized on January 25th? What would the holidays and with the blasé uh, enjoyment of Biden's having won the presidency, I think it's likely it, that, that one reason to get Trump to back off on all of this is to let political feeling die down and let people go back to their lives, back to their Christmas time, and then um, it'll be a fairer fight, a more even fight on January 5th. But I think the Republicans are more likely to stay mobilized, so Thinking about that and looking at the numbers, I think the Republicans are going to win those two Georgia seats and therefore that the, the um, Republicans will keep control of the Senate. That's my prediction. Let's see. Um, where will Biden put Buttigieg? Buttigieg will get some important position, Axios tells us with no acknowledgement that there's any uncertainty that Biden has indeed been elected president. Quote, Biden officials have made clear to donors and party officials the question surrounding Buttigieg is not if, but where he lands, Democrats close to Biden tell Axios. The position, Buttigieg, close quote, the position Buttigieg wants, we're told, is ambassador to the UN, and of course it makes sense that his background as mayor of a small city in the Midwest sets him up well to deal with international affairs. Quote, one key question, how would Kamala Harris feel about having a potential 2024 rival lurking in the cabinet and building a donor base from a perch at the United Nations and around New York City's big donors? Close quote. And I said, I hope that doesn't become the key question at every turn. How would Kamala Harris feel? Ugh. I hope this isn't the beginning of a new phase of semi-conscious misogyny. Because the vice president is a woman. We must think about the vice president's feelings. Does anyone ever wonder how Mike Pence feels? I see discrimination against women there even though it, they don't notice it because they think they're being deferential to her or calling special attention to her as the vice president, but it shouldn't be about how she feels. It's not about her feelings. This idea that a person should be able to get power, not because of what they're going to do for us, but because how it would make them feel, like we're doing them favors, 
We don't want to hurt their feelings. Anyway, that was just a minor choice of words there at Axios. But the idea is, if, if Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg are rivals for the Democratic nomination in 2024, that he is advantaged by being in the United Nation because you're in the cabinet, but you're out there in New York City. So you have a certain amount of independence. And of course, you're building your portfolio as someone with experience with respect to foreign affairs. And how else are you going to get that? Well, we'll see what Kamala Harris ends up being given to do. And I said, as for the image of lurking from a perch, right? Let's see, see the language there. Um, how would Kamala Harris feel about having a potential 2024 rival lurking in the cabinet and building a donor base from a perch at the United Nations? As for the image of lurking from a perch, don't get me started. This is one of these language things, and I could go into a lot of detail. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I, um, I controlled myself and did not go into the Oxford English Dictionary. Well, actually, I did look up lurk and perch in the Oxford English Dictionary. What am I saying? I didn't control myself. I just controlled myself in not lengthening the post with a lot of detail about the word lurk and the word perch. I forget where lurk came from. Hmm. I, I knew it this morning and I've forgotten, but lurking involves hiding. If you look up the meaning of lurking, lying in wait, lying in ambush, there's a sneakiness to it. So people are lurking. There's the idea of Pete Buttigieg, ambassador to the United Nations, lurking in the cabinet and building a donor base from a perch in the United Nations. So he's lurking. I guess he's lurking in the cabinet He's because he's not in Washington. He's in New York. And he's building a donor base. I, I guess he's perching in one place and lurking in another place. He's not lurking and perching at the same time. So maybe, it, I, I said it's not possible to lurk on a perch, but maybe he's, he lurks in one way and he perches in another. So he's out there in the open uh, showing off, being seen in New York. Meanwhile, he's lurking in the cabinet. He's there, but not there. So maybe he can lurk and perch at the same time. Maybe it's not as... Uh, impossible, a paradox, as it looked to me at first. But lurking involves hiding, lying in wait. It's sneaky. A perch is a high place. It's all about being conspicuous and showing off. How do images like that happen? I hope it's not homophobia. Two stereotypes about gay men popping up in the same sentence. So I'm going to be on the alert about whether Kamala Harris is talked about in a way that's that reflects stereotypes about women. I'm just going to rake people over the coals for using language that she's in a high position of power. It doesn't matter to me whether she's male or female now. I don't want to see her getting special treatment or discrimination against. I'm going to watch how they talk about her. I don't want special woman talk about her. I'm going to, I'm going to be noticing. As for Pete Buttigieg, I'm going to be noticing whether there's anything in, in discussing him that has to do with his being gay. It gets an interesting fact about him. Uh, it's gotten him some attention, but when you talk about his suitability for ambassador to the UN and for Democratic nominee for president in 2024, 
I don't see the relevance of his being a gay man, other than that it would be one of these milestones that they want us to keep getting excited about, if we're not tired of milestones by now. But I don't like seeing language describing him that picks up on uh, ideas about gay people, gay men. So what are the two, some people in the comments said, what, what are you talking about, Old House? What, what two stereotypes about gay men were in that sentence, the lurking and the perching? Well, lurking, there's an idea about gay men that they're hiding uh, in bathrooms or in behind bushes or that they're trying to, um, uh, that they might attack you, that they might go after whatever young men or uh, whatever. So, right, there's an idea that they're predatory. That's the lurking. I'm not saying they're predatory. I'm saying that's a, stere a negative stereotype that may have unconsciously found its way into that sentence. And they should be uh, aware of when they're mobilizing, deploying images about a gay man that is a negative stereotype, that they're talking about him like that because he's gay. It's not necessarily true, but this is the kind of analysis that's used from the left. So I want to use it at the left as well. It has to be balanced out. So one stereotype lurking is that the gay man is hiding and might be predatory and also that he's in the closet. He's not, uh, he's not as forthcoming and uh, outward as other people. And perch, perch is the idea of showing yourself off of being out and proud and, uh, and being um, uh, preening. Oh, right. These are bird words, perch and preening preening, being showy, stuff like that. So I see, you know, it's subtle. This is something that the critical studies people talk about all the time, that there are traces of discrimination in the language. You have to be aware of that. You, to just say, oh, Altos, don't talk like that. Don't you be one of those people. No, it's important to balance it out by seeing these things. And you know, when you do your own writing, I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to help you. Notice when you're doing that, there are metaphors in words all the time. Why does a word seem colorful? Lurk and perch are colorful seeming words. And a lot of times you try to use words that seem to have vivid images in them. That creates a lot of possibility for allowing your feelings about different types of people to show up. And, and that's done all the time amongst the critical studies people. So. I'm, I'm doing it not because I'm accusing Axios of homophobia. I'm doing it partly for fun and partly for balance and partly to um, make it more normal to bring these things out in the open so that you're not shocked when it happens some of the time. And also I think that the, just to go back to the old uh, George Orwell politics in the English language idea of dying metaphors, there are a lot of words in the English language that have concrete real world images in them and people have stopped noticing, not all people, but many people have stopped noticing the image, the concrete image that's in the word. And then they may awkwardly create pictures that don't make sense, for example, like the problem of how can you lurk and perch at the same time, right? You've got some contradiction but also that you might uh, reveal feelings that you don't particularly want to feel. So uh, if you're asking yourself, how would Professor Althaus feel about my using this word? That might be a good 
thing to, oh, no, no, no. If you worry about how I feel, you might be a misogynist. So let's see. There's also, I only have, um, I have three more. And one is this uh, sommelier piece I've been saying I was going to come up with. I also wanted to talk about that Alex Trebek died. I'm sorry to see Alex Trebek died. He was an excellent presence on Jeopardy, and the whole feeling of what Jeopardy was seems just inexorably tied to the sort of person that Alex Trebek was. And I remember Jeopardy when it first came on TV back in the 60s, and we, my friend, when we were teenagers, loved the show with... Um, with uh, Oh, Art Fleming, Art Fleming, Art Fleming, and then Don Pardo was the announcer. Uh, yeah, but but it was a more fun-loving show then. It was more uh, for everyone. It didn't have so much of a sense of erudition or be, the people being super smart. It was more for everyone as opposed to if you could play, you were you you were especially smart or the people at home were admiring these folks but I like the 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 way Jeopardy ended up being with Alex Trebek was more like there were tv shows back in the 60s that were like that notably G, I think it was called GE College Bowl and they had teams from colleges answering questions and they tried to make it seem erudite and the people being especially honed in their intellectual skills but uh, Alex Trebek brought that elevation to Jeopardy that made it pretty cool. I liked it, and different from other quiz shows. Uh, it was sort of quiet. It was soothing. It was very sweet. So he seemed like a gentle, sweet man, and he will be missed by millions of people. So goodbye to him. But he did live to be 80. He was quite old. You know, some people can be pretty old these days, and you don't really notice how old they are. I mean, we're about to have a president who's almost 80. Uh, oldness is, um, it works a lot better these days than it did in the past. But then people die when they're still active, and you wonder, well, they were old. They were old, but they were still part of the active world that we were enjoying and consuming. And when they go, we miss. We don't just look back and say, oh, I love that guy. We're, we're actively going to miss that person. They were they were doing something now that we were we were part of. We were involved in. So it's sad. Now I've got one more political thing, and then I'm going to talk about the sommeliers. This is from Washington Post, a column by James Downey, D O W N I E. Democratic leaders play a ridiculous blame game with progressives. Quote, remember from the Democratic primary onward, party leaders warned against running on Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, and other progressive ideas? Instead, Democrats went small, focusing on saving the Affordable Care Act and providing a check on President Trump. But after the party lost House seats and failed to retake the Senate, the knives are out for the left anyway. It's understandable that congressional Democrats want to blame something other than their own candidate recruitment process. It is simply false to claim that standing up proudly for policies such as Medicare for All and a Green New Deal hasn't worked, when the truth is it hasn't been tried. 
For decades, congressional Democrats have run every cycle with a moderate message engineered by moderate, high-priced consultants. When this plan succeeds, the party establishment trumpets their wisdom. Yet when it more frequently fails, the leadership and moderates blame the progressives. They rejected the entire campaign. Close quote. Well, that says all that needs to be said there. That's an issue I'm following. The fighting within the Democratic Party and particularly the progressives saying, don't blame us. You did it your way and said we would, we would cause failure, but you should have listened to us. Now, there is an article in the New York Times, and this is the last piece I'm going to talk about today, the, about a problem among the, in, in something called the Court of Master Sommeliers, so these wine experts that work in restaurants and order wine and uh, recommend wine and so forth. The chairman of the Court of Master Sommeliers, Americas, resigned on Friday after 13 women went public with accusations of sexual misconduct in the court's highest ranks. Quote, all of the women who came forward to the Times have been candidates for the title of Master Sommelier, an honor conferred by the court after a long process of evaluations and exams, some of which are graded in secret. Close, uh, just close quote for a minute so that I can say you might have seen the movie Somm, S-O-M-M, about this process. Um, that movie got, documentary, got a lot of praise, but I thought, and I think it got a lot of praise from people who thought, wow, isn't it amazing all of this uh, knowledge and skill these people have? It's so hard to pass the exams. But I was very skeptical about whether this... Um, this process was on the up and up. It seemed to be testing people for being able to spout a lot of words very quickly after tasting a little wine, saying things that uh, that uh, the wine smelled of. Like I remember, I wrote about the movie a while back, and I remember one of the smells someone detected was cut rubber hose. <laughs> and I remember my dear husband said something like, "Who? Why would someone cut a hose?" And you know. And the smell of a hose that's been cut. So this is, you have to have these experiences that you can draw on quickly out of your mind. I mean, I don't mean out of your mind, like you're out of your mind. I mean, you have to have a mind full of uh, a memory bank of smells, things that you've smelled, grandmother's closet and so forth. Don't don't get distracted and start talking about Joe Biden and things he's smelled. We're sticking to the subject, and it's the last subject. It's the sommeliers. Back to the text, quote, all the men, all the men who've been accused, all the men are master sommeliers who had the power to help or hurt the women's progress. At 25, Marie-Louise Friedland had passed the introductory exam and joined a study group to practice for the next level while also working full-time. Mr. Brolier, or Brogley, Broly, offered her to help her study for the tasting portion of the exam in private sessions at his home, which proved to be preludes to sexual invitations. 
uh, let me close quote just to say, this reminds me of the Charlie Rose scandals of a few years back. I mean, who gets invited for special private sessions in the expert's home? And also, why would one of the testers be fraternizing with one of the um, one of the applicants? That uh, doesn't seem fair. They should be keeping a separation. But um, going to the home under those circumstances, uh, you can see why it might be believed by the person who's already crossing a line to be some kind of an indication that there was going to be some kind of consent. At, quote, at first I was flattered, but also very confused and afraid, she said. I never enjoyed our encounters and really tried to make that clear in the hopes that he would stop trying. She said she rejected most of his sexual advances. but had to do so in a friendly way in order to preserve the professional relationship. I forced myself in my head to treat it as a fling or relationship to be able to wrap my brain around the interactions, Ms. Friedland said, but it never fit. We weren't dating. We never spoke about it. I felt like I was on call for sex from someone I couldn't say no to. As she advanced in the wine profession, that power dynamic, that power dynamic and the question of whether she had earned her success haunted her. Haunted. She was haunted. Whether she earned her success. She moved to San Francisco to work as a sommelier at Quince, one of the most prestigious and popular restaurants in San Francisco then became wine director at State Bird Provisions, a dream job. But the emotional cost of working with the many master sommeliers in the Bay Area was too high. She eventually left the city, the profession, and the court. And I said, isn't this sommelier process mostly a scam anyway? There's a mysterious process to get a valuable credential on the say-so of purported authorities. Here's an article at Eater. Is sommelier certification bullshit? I wouldn't trust the already certified, especially the wielders of power, to say it's not bullshit. What a temptation to those authorities to offer a shortcut to success when it serves their personal sexual interests. And what a temptation to the credential seeker to take the shortcut. And then, if that's how you got your dream job, what's to save you from self-doubt? The New York Times says it plainly. She was haunted. And then I gave you a link to the legendary study that embarrassed wine experts across the globe. You remember this from a few years back? Quote, in a sneaky study, a PhD candidate in enology, O-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y, wine science, a PhD candidate in wine science, died a white wine red and gave it to 54 wine science students. The supposedly expert panel overwhelmingly described the beverage like they would a red wine. So they're not really tasting what they claim to be tasting. They're looking, they're drawing on things they already know. They're not really testing the thing that they're tasting on the spot. 
And that, that aligned with my sense of what was going on in those tests when I saw that documentary song. Then I added, uh, the New York Times concerns itself. This is, now what I'm about to say is something that comes up in sexual harassment cases all the time. It comes up when we think about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Didn't she consent? Wasn't she an eager participant? But it's not just the person who has the sexual encounter who is affected by sexual harassment in the workplace. It's also the people who are jumped over by that person to get the access, the people that aren't offered access, the people who say no, the people who don't get the offer in the first place. And there's some lookism involved in all of this. Um, Monica Lewinsky may have chosen to do what she did, but there were other women who weren't given that choice and other women who said no, like Paula Jones. So it's a, it's a bigger system than just a sexual encounter between two people where you might uh, some people might think there should be more freedom of choice and, and consent, and the issue should just be consent. But the the problem is that it affects everybody. I mean, the this certification, which is worth a lot of money, is going to be done in a corrupt way, where the people who are considered sexually attractive by the testers get a, a shortcut. They get to go through a different process. And yet, in the end, is it really beneficial even to that person who got a shortcut who got certification without really deserving it. They might be haunted, haunted by self-doubt, or they might uh, be vaulted into a job position that they actually can't do that well. Of course, if the, the certification, if the whole test is bullshit anyway, it doesn't really matter. They'll be able to do their job well. Uh, and perhaps the fact that they were so attractive that they were the one that got the offer of the shortcut might be the very thing that would help them the most in the job. Maybe the restaurants are looking for the, uh, the best-looking people, and the knowledge itself is bullshit. Anyway, the New York Times concerns itself with the women who took the offered shortcut and regretted it. What about the women who did not? Think about how they were hurt. And what about the men who were denied even the a choice whether to trade sexual favors for advancement. They too are hurt. I'd also like to see some investigation into the lookism within the sommelier profession. That's not unrelated. So when you're trading sex for uh, a shortcut to the certification, you're creating, it's a whole elaborate system of who gets ahead of whom. And it's not just that some people are sexually exploited. Because with respect to that, you might say, well, these people should have resisted when, when motioned toward this uh, side door, this workaround that you could take to get where you want to go. Um, you, oh, damn. I forgot where I was going to go with that. Side doors, maybe I'm looking for the side door out of this podcast. This is a podcast where I got distracted a few times. Now, I could go back and edit, but I don't like to edit. You know, we've been having this lovely Indian summer here in Madison, Wisconsin, and today started out quite beautiful, but the clouds are rolling in, and um, it's going to be rainy tomorrow, and then it's going to get cool again. So the, this, this beautiful week-long period of uh, Indian summer has been quite lovely, and I can tell you why I got distracted just then and couldn't finish my sentence. It's because 
And I know people are talking about this in the comments. I don't even know if I want to want to talk about it. No, 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 no. There are issues about certain people in politics, and I didn't want to go back to politics, who might have gotten a shortcut, a boost over other people as they advanced in their career because of the way they look, looked and the side door of sexual favors that they were offered and chose to take they get an advantage. You might think, well, I don't want to hold that against that person for the rest of their career. And yet, who did they get ahead of? Who did they get ahead of in that time? And, and speaking of character, I'm bringing up character because of uh, Jake Tapper a moment ago, uh, doesn't it show bad character on the part of that person that they chose to get ahead of others by taking this alternate route toward the success that they wanted, that other people had to get the hard way. And that's not at all to say that the person inside the organization that created the side door, that offered the shortcut, isn't wrong. Those people are wrong too. Those people are corrupt and they're abusing their power and they're hurting everybody in the system, including the person who accepted the offer to go in through the side door.